Morning, Sammy. Good to be back again. It's been a while. I'm in my farmer's outfit today. Yes, living on the land. I'm back in the office once more. Well, kids and school holidays, what a, what a delight. Isn't it fun? The joys. Now, today we're going to talk a little bit about an article that popped up last week in The Age in the Australian. Now, I'll bring it up on screen. Pull it up, Jamie. They say on the Joe Roman show. Here we go. This is it here. Article by Liam Mannix on the 16th of September. TGA flags prescription cannabis risks as pain experts claim lack of medical benefit. It's an interesting article to say the least. A bit of, seems to be some quite divisive commentary in here too. Why don't we pull it apart bit by bit and there, there are some things in there which seem valid and then there are some bits and pieces in there that I think you'd happily rebuff. So uh, rebuff yes. away, a great one. What would you like to know, Sam? First of all, I think the key here is that the, the head of the anaesthetist society has come out and said that cannabis doesn't help with pain and that at least opioids do. So that was, that was my summation of what he had to say. So why yeah. don't we, we, we start there? Yeah. Dr. Vag's come out a few times talking out against cannabis over the last couple of, couple of years with some pretty strong statements that seem to be a little bit ill-informed. He compared cannabis efficacy to alcohol in a pre in a previous, uh, article. And, and now he's saying that opioids are better evidence than cannabis for treating chronic pain because we are only using cannabis in chronic conditions, not acute pain. Opioids do have a role in acute pain management around surgery or if someone breaks their leg or has an acute hospitalization. Yeah. Opioids are a fantastic medication for alleviating the suffering around those acute issues, but there is absolutely no evidence that opioids improve chronic pain outcomes. And there's a lot of evidence to, to show that they actually increase, uh, the burden of chronic pain. And obviously there's huge morbidity and potential mortality around using opioids as well. So they lead to a lot of dis dysfunction and yes, accidental overdose of opioids can lead to death quite easily. Whereas cannabinoids, yes, have no evidence at all for the treatment of acute pain. That's true. I wouldn't be using cannabinoids over opioids if someone broke their leg or if someone was having surgery, I would prefer to be using something like fentanyl to minimize the, 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 the pain due to that, those iatrogenic, the, the doctor induced pain that might be caused in that scenario. But for, for chronic pain. There is a lot, there is a lot of mixed evidence out there around cannabis, but there's been multiple literature reviews that have looked at the collective randomized controlled trials and, and other studies that have shown that there's at least 30% improvement in pain using cannabinoids. And the biggest issue highlighted in some of those studies was that there is also side effects around using cannabinoids. Those side effects are really quite mild in comparison to other drugs that, that people might be using. And there's a lack of gold standard evidence around cannabinoids being large double-blind multi-centered randomized controlled trials but they're not non-existent trials have been quite extensive and shown some really great benefit in regards to cannabinoids but it costs a lot of money and it's quite difficult to do those types of trials on a naturally occurring compound and generally when they have been done they've used inappropriate cannabis preparations and standardized dosing which doesn't really work for, for cannabis so the studies have been in, in a lot of ways, not fit purpose when looking at the efficacy of cannabis, but the ones that have been done and the collection of the data shows that many of those literature reviews have shown relatively good evidence that cannabis does help for chronic pain. In order to 
do trials, really what you need at the end is a patentable drug. And having a patentable cannabinoid-based drug is almost impossible. A lot of the drug companies are squatting on any terms that have anything to do with cannabis, which prohibits you from actually coming out with a patent. And secondly, because it was an illegal drug, the ability to actually run trials for decades was minimized. So it's not surprising that there is what would appear to be a lack of evidence for cannabis, but that I suspect will continue to grow. I think if you do a PubMed search, I I heard another clinician say that there's around 40,000 articles on cannabis in PubMed, and that's four times as much as alcohol. It's, it's, I would love to see how many more articles there are on cannabis versus, versus opioids. And so there is huge amounts of evidence out there. Most of those studies have been trying to prove the harms of cannabis. Let's say 90, 95% of those studies were trying to prove harms of cannabis in a prohibition type model where this is an an illegal. With all of that money and all of those trials that have been done to date, the harms that have been shown have been really minimal and inconsistent and no clear evidence of significant harm around cannabinoids. So this leads into that second point. One of the main second points within this article is that cannabis might replace opioids is as an epidemic, a medical cannabis epidemic. And that is so far-fetched and absolutely ridiculous. Yes, people might use more cannabis as it becomes more widely available, but that doesn't mean that it's going to lead to the same dysfunction in society that we see with over-prescription of of opioids. And we're not going to see people become hooked to cannabis in the same way that they do to opioids. And then we're not going to see people dying like they do from opioids. So the dose required to cause death in someone who's using opioids is about Look, just off the top of my head, I think it's 70 times the therapeutic dose. Let's say five milligrams of endone, you have 300 milligrams of endone and, and, and you're dead. And it's quite easy to do. The, the risk of toxicity with THC is really theoretical. It hasn't really been shown to occur in someone who doesn't have underlying significant sort of issues. And it's over a thousand times greater than the therapeutic dose someone would normally use. So to actually consume enough THC to cause an overdose that leads to death is physically impossible. You'd have to drink bottles and bottles of high concentration oil, which no one can physically do, or you would have to smoke like a couple of kilos of cannabis in one sitting, which is once again, impossible. The only way it could happen is if someone is forcing it in through an IV against someone's will, which that's just sadistic and that's never going to happen. So... There is no comparison there. And to try and draw a comparison is just stirring up, stirring the hornet's nest and, and just trying to trying to influence ill-informed policymakers in many ways. Using the term opioid epidemic is quite a clickbaity, isn't it? It, it? it is. There is a legitimate opioid epidemic. We're all aware of that. It is hugely problematic, much worse in North America than it is in Australia, but still it's a scourge in Australia as well. And there is a significant overprescribing of opioids out there because there is a lack of alternative options for patients. Doctors aren't giving people opioids because they want to give them opioids. They're trying to alleviate suffering of, of the people in front of them because they care and they have no tools in their toolkit that are, are safe and effective. And cannabis may not be effective for everyone, but at least it's safe and it's worth a try. And it may not take, we look at the pain scores and what, what Ian McGregor's here, you, you might look at a, a pain score and the pain, the physical pain itself 
may not change dramatically with cannabinoids for certain individuals, but people's ability to tolerate the pain and not be as affected by it and live their life with pain changes quite dramatically. And from my under, understanding, if we're looking at pain, it's not just a physical thing. It's, it's, a, it's a subjective experience and, and it's how you respond to those these uncomfortable feelings is what leads to the significant restrictions in someone's life that makes pain so hard to, to live with. And cannabis does work in some ways at the periphery and reduce inflammation and reduces those nerves from being switched on. It reduces the excitability of nerves as they you know, travel up to the brain. There's changes of the periaqueductal gray, gray matter in the thalamus, which actually helps to regulate that sort of pain signal. But one of the biggest ways that cannabis can help pain is it, it reduces the emotional attachment to that pain. It, it untangles the emotional connection with that pain. And therefore there's a physical symptom there, but it doesn't have that fear and worry avoidance type behaviors that, that come with pain. So you know, from my experience, the clinical measures in these trials may not be looking at the total benefit that people get from using cannabinoids. And I'd believe that a lot of the trials that have been done have been using inappropriate cannabis-based medicines as well, because it's not all the one thing. It is a very complex herbal medicine with hundreds of different active components. And the way that they're arranged and what ratios creates unique and varied medicines, which means that with a clinician who understands what they're doing, they can actually create really targeted therapies for that individual and not just around their symptoms that they're experiencing, but their functional goals as well. It gives clinicians a lot of flexibility to give people the best chance of having better quality of life. Now, he's having a bit of a pop at uh, you and fellow GPs here where he says, it's also ethically concerning that the vast majority of prescribing is for chronic pain and is being done by non-specialists who have a very narrow focus on pharmaceutical management of pain. So my question to you there would be, if you as a GP are seeing a patient who has chronic pain, when, at what point would you prescribe them to a pain specialist and how available are pain specialist appointments? Yeah, very good question there, Sam. Pain specialists are extremely difficult to get into. They cost a lot of money. And if they're just going to the pain specialist themselves, pain specialists often have a, a narrow focus as well. They'll be using medications. They might be having some, have some interventions that they might use, some, some injections. They might have some stimulators that they can use that modulate the nerve sort of response. Often, most of these treatments have lack of evidence and cost a lot of money. The only evidence really is around a multidisciplinary team getting together, the physio, the psychologist, the exercise physiologist, the pain specialist, the GP, all being together, working as a whole to help people moderate their behavior around those painful stimuli. And those types of multidisciplinary team clinics are the gold standard, but they're often two-year wait lists for a patient to, to get in to see them. That a GP is ill-qualified to deal with chronic pain, considering chronic pain affects about 3.2 million Australians, and only, I have no idea, but less than 10% of those patients would ever make it to a pain specialist. GPs are the ones who are dealing with chronic pain the, the most. And it's not just pain, it's how it impacts their life, how it impacts their sleep, how it impacts their relationships, how it affects there are other chronic conditions. Chronic pain shouldn't be looked at in isolation because it is not a condition in isolation. 
And so I think to downplay the role of GPs in, in managing these patients is, is, it's an insult in many ways. So they then go on to cite Professor Ian Lefrega, who seems to have a uh, somewhat more balanced view. And he goes on to say, here you can see it on the screen, sensory measures of pain may not change that much with cannabis, but what does seem to change is people's ability to get on and enjoy their lives. And that's fantastic mm. use. I think that backs up what you're saying. Now, then they go on to say here, which I think is interesting, but he, he points out, trying to equate medicinal cannabis uptake to opioid epidemic, his grotesque opioids kill people, cannabinoids do not, that, that backs up mm-hmm. your, your claims. Now, then they go on another bit of clickbaity stuff here is they talk about a 500 TGA tracking 521 adverse events linked to medical cannabis, 77 requiring hospitalization and 16 being life threatening. That doesn't tell you why those people were in there or what their underlying conditions were. In yeah. your experience, how many life threatening situations are there that have been brought by just purely by using cannabis? I'm at- I'm an N equals one and, uh, you know, I account for every prescriber out there, but I haven't seen any life-threatening reactions to medical cannabis in six years of prescribing. And not I've, to say, I guess not to say it couldn't happen. There could be drug interactions. Again, yeah. we just don't have enough information there. The, and again, because, well, I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to provide a balanced view here. So where we are critiquing what, and again, we may have cognitive biases. But then when they say things here, like the TGA also notified of four deaths in children using medicinal cannabis, although in inverted commas, the deaths appear related to underlying health conditions. This seems like yeah. some COVID type data about who was dying huh. from COVID despite the fact that they had terminal cancer. Yeah, they had terminal cancer, intractable epilepsy, like parents are desperate. They've gone to medical cannabis because their kids are dying. And cannabis isn't a wonder drug all the time. It's not a panacea and it didn't work effectively for those children and their conditions got the better of them. I'm hoping those patients had some relief and reprieve and improved quality of life while they were using cannabis when they were facing a a terminal diagnosis. But to imply that cannabis was the cause of the worsening of their condition is just, it's yeah grotesque. I think Ian McGregor says it the best. But yeah, get, getting back to those patients and those life-threatening reactions, yes, someone needs to have knowledge when prescribing medical cannabis because the main one being if someone has really unstable cardiovascular disease and they're given an inappropriate dose of THC, it can put a bit of stress on the heart. And so we need to be cautious there. But one of the beneficial things with cannabinoids and, and the endocannabinoid system is that there's a lack of cannabinoid receptors in the cardiorespiratory centers of the brain so that they don't cause the same respiratory depression or or slowing down of the heart that come with things like opioids and a lot of the other medications that might be used by these pain specialists. Talking about the evidence, the amount of neuropathic pain meds, Lyrica, pregabalin, amitriptyline that's thrown around out there because people are desperate. There's no evidence for them to be used outside of a very narrow group of indications, yet they are all, all the time. So to say that there's no evidence for cannabis, yet everything that is prescribed by pain specialists has gold standard of evidence. It's just a, a complete and utter fallacy. Cannabis is going to be in the news a lot, I think, in the coming years, because it is a fast-growing cate- category within prescription medicine. And it's got the same old targets painted on its back, but it's always had. Yeah. I think we should be taking, a, in many ways, we should be focusing on harm minimization sort of policies. And yeah, if people who are self-medicating, see the doctor and, and can have the doctor as the gatekeeper for those medicines that they enjoy using means that there's going to be much less chance of harm occurring. 
and we're not just lining the pocket, pockets of criminals. I don't think there should be unscrupulous and inappropriate prescribing of medical cannabis. It shouldn't just be a, a free-for-all. But those who are using cannabis for for underlying mental health and insomnia, it's better off them seeing a doctor to access their, their medicine and getting appropriate counselling and being diverted into appropriate sort of channels so that they get the support then going and then keeping it all underground. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else we want to wrap up on this article? Do you, how do you think this would be perceived by GPs who aren't prescribing cannabis and maybe sitting on the feds? Do you think they would read through and, and be able to see a, some of the balanced arguments here? Or is this kind of a clickbaity, fear-mongering piece that they put people off, do you think? Look, I, th- I think it's probably the latter and it's more of a, f- a fear mongering and, and doctors are not immune to social, the so, social sort of biases. And, and we have come from a prohibitionist sort of era. People are you know, wary of illicit drugs as they've been, as they've been, uh, touted for such a, such a long period of time, anything that's re- reaffirming that sort of bias is going to help solidify their, their position of no, we don't believe in, in cannabis. And it's, I, I can't believe that there's a, a medicine out there that comes down to a belief system rather than this is a, an option and that we could use for our patients that has been proven to be safe and and can provide benefit for for, for certain individuals. It's crazy that we're we're making decisions around people's health based on these belief systems. It's not about belief; it's about building building the evidence base, and that's true. It needs needs to sort of happen. You know, if people want to know more and want to know about that evidence, please reach out. Happy to point them in the right direction. We'll put up a link to your calendar in the show notes. And for anyone out there who is a healthcare practitioner who'd like to have a chat to Jim, he offers a free ability to book a time in his calendar and, and have a one-on-one chat. Thanks, Sam. All right, Jim. Nice work. Yeah, we'll see you, mate. chat to you soon.